Houses are built to protect us from the elements, but sometimes they prove incapable of withstanding the tempest. There's just not much they can do about it. There's other times it's not so much the storm that topples a house as the building's location. We view these images before us and we think, wow, that was one terrible storm. It would topple a house like that. But isn't there another question that comes into your mind? What exactly were they thinking? This is horrible, isn't it? I don't know if they were in there the night when that happened or not, but you have to ask, did you not consider this? Did somebody not think about this? These houses failed to withstand the storm because they were constructed on questionable ground. Sometimes the only way to learn that is in a very terrible storm. But we need to be thoughtful about this, obviously. But compare this with these images, for instance, with northern Minnesota's iconic split rock lighthouse. Now that's what you call solid ground, quite obviously. This is ground that won't slide away in a heavy rainstorm. The lighthouse does not stand because of the perpetual picnic weather on the north shore of Lake Superior, we realize. It can be a pretty tempestuous place. It's the rock on which the lighthouse is built that makes all the difference, isn't it? As Jesus of Nazareth closes the Sermon on the Mount, he does so with an extended illustration of this ilk. We've been considering in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he insists that we are building our lives on a foundation that will withstand the storms of life and the final storm of divine judgment, or we're building on a foundation that will not stand. One that he tells us, not a good place to build. It won't end well. In these closing words of instruction, Jesus pictures us as builders. And He asks, what is the grounding orientation of your life? What's the grounding orientation? Upon what foundation are you building your life? At issue, then, is the foundation... But Jesus stresses perhaps even more here at the end of the sermon, not just the foundation, but the decision that we make as builders. On what foundation are you building? In this way, Jesus persists with the predominant theme of the sermon's conclusion, a theme we've considered the last two weeks. Remember chapter 7 and verse 13. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Crucial issue is our relationship to Jesus and His teaching. We are called to enter into this narrow gate, and onto this narrow way. Verses 15 and following. We encounter then the utter danger of false teaching. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, by the fruit of their life, by their moral standing and character eventually. If they're an unhealthy tree, they're going to produce unhealthy fruit. If it's a healthy tree, it's going to produce healthy fruit. And so it is with teachers. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Beware. Watch out for false teaching. It's absolutely deadly. It's not something to play around with. It's not something where we say we're all welcome to our own opinion. We match everything according to what Christ has said, to what the Bible reveals. False prophets are dangerous. Beware. He then considers false profession, which is eternally destructive. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? The decision's already been made. The judge has spoken. They're condemned. They're lost. And they're arguing with him. But we did this. We had this experience. We have this history. And then will I declare to them, this is Jesus, the Jewish teacher on this mountain, saying in the judgment, I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. By the fruit, workers of lawlessness, they are detected to be not my children. Not those that Christ has chosen and saved. So as Jesus concludes the conclusion of the sermon, He exhorts us to build our lives on the solid rock of His Word. Eternity is at stake. In light of the entire sermon, we must get this. Your life is only as strong as the foundation on which you are building it. Now, in the land of Israel, there's a lot of rocky terrain. There's no need for cement foundations. What they would do is just dig down to the rock. If there was rock there, it usually wasn't very far below the surface and it made a solid foundation on which to build a house. That's the context in which he uses this figure of speech. But figuratively speaking, Jesus exhorts us then to dig down to the solid bedrock by living in submission to Jesus as Lord and in active obedience to His Word. That's a life orientation. That's an absolute commitment. To build your life on that foundation. And it will hold, He says. It will hold. So he has pictured two gates leading to two distinct paths. He has pictured the different fruit of two types of trees. Now he contrasts two builders, by which he means two lives built on two different foundations. So the issue, at issue again is the foundation, but at issue is the choice that the builders make or the wisdom with which they build. We meet, first of all, in verse 24, the wise builder. Verse 24 of Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine, not hearing them audibly, of course, nor merely understanding what Jesus has taught. But here in what sense? Here in the sense of understanding and trusting Jesus' words and then living upon those words. Words of absolute, eternal significance. Life-altering truth. Those who hear these words of mine in that sense, and then you notice the phrase, and does them. That parallels to verse 21. It's not those who claim to know Christ that enter His kingdom. It is the one who does the will of my Father, he says, verse 21b. And so here again in verse 24, those who hear my words and do them. This one is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So we must know who Jesus is, the Lord of life, the final judge of the living and the dead. We must learn what Jesus has taught, what is right, what is wrong, how to live for God's glory through His instruction and through His counsel in all that the Bible teaches. And then thirdly, we must absolutely put His words into practice. We must do them. To bring all three of these elements together is what it means to build your life on the rock. I know who Jesus is. I know the truth of God. And I am seeking to actively obey this day in and day out. It is to base all that you say, all that you do, all that you think, and everything that you want, you base it on who Jesus is. You stand it on that foundation, on who He is and what He has said. 
his demands to his followers. One commentator puts it this way, Hendrickson, every ambition a man cherishes, every thought he conceives, every word he speaks, and every deed he performs is, as it were, building on the rock. What happens when we choose the path of wisdom and construct our lives on the firm foundation of Jesus' counsel? What is the outcome of this? Verse 25, And the rain fell. And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. It was on good land. It was in a good place. So if the house is my life, let's talk about the storm for a moment. If in the figure of speech, the house is a life, a life orientation, The storm, then, is whatever troubles and assaults my life. In this context, the ultimate assault, the ultimate storm, is to stand before the judgment seat of Christ in eternity. It's consistent with how the storm uh, analogy is used throughout Scripture. We might find particularly in Ezekiel chapter 13. But until that day, until the day that we stand before Christ in judgment... Storms are anything that assaults our faith, that causes heartache, anything that has the potential to shake your soul, to weaken you as an individual. These storms of life will come. The rain will come. It will crash against your house, Jesus says. But as the rains come down, the house does not because it's on the rock. Torrential rains fall. And in the hilly, rocky terrain of Palestine, the waters collect and rush in a stream against the house. Everybody hearing this would have understood the image. But the house stands. That is to say, the wise soul who has so ordered his or her life can withstand any and every storm that life throws at you. And the reason, of course, is not because we are so strong. The reason, of course, is not even because we are so wise. The reason is because the rock holds. It's immovable. There's a lot of storms in our lives. There's a lot of storms that we have faced as a church through the years, and some of you are facing right now. Very significant storms. And I guess for every one of us, the wind's blowing somewhere, somehow, in our life. But we're going to deal with some of those heavy, violent storms. We're going to deal with disease. We're going to have to face disease. We're going to have to face the death of loved ones taken from us, wanting them to be with us, not wanting their death facing that reality every day. We face financial collapse. We face persecution. Comprising a gale force wind and torrential rains that strike us in whatever way that it is, the storms come, but a life built on the solid rock of Jesus' person and teaching will stand. There is a promise here of sorts. The rains came, the floods rose, the house stood. We sang it today. John Rippon's 18th century words. Words of God to troubled people. Here it is, based on this text. How firm a foundation Ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. In His Word, that firm foundation. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to His foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. We are not delivered from the storm of trial in this life. We're not delivered from final judgment in the next because we prove to be obedient people. That our obedience deserves this treatment from God. 
We are saved by the storms of life and saved against the storm of God's judgment. Because Christ is our rock and has become our wisdom. But that trust will show itself in the good fruits of obedience. It will play out that way. Where we trust His words, where He has saved us by His grace, where He is the rock on which we are building the foundation of our life. There will be the fruits of of obedience. This is one man that Christ illustrates. One person standing on this rock, building a house upon it. We find the foolish builder in verse 26. This man hears the words of the Lord as well. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Presumably, he is the sort of person who says, Lord, Lord, before the judgment seat of Christ. But this man does not build his life on the foundation of Jesus' lordship, but on the shifting sands of the spirit of the age, the shifting sands of the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the heart, to live in freedom and dependence upon me. That's how this one lives. And in our culture, such persons pride themselves in being on the right side of history or something of the like. With the times. Trumpeting the spirit of the age. But in God's eyes, such a life orientation earns just two things. One, Jesus' declaration, you are a fool. You're a fool. To build your life on your own ideas, following your own passion, seeking your own glory... That is nothing less than moral insanity. You're a fool. Those are hard words. Direct, confrontational. The thing we've got to ask is, is it true? And knowing that it is, Jesus can say nothing else to us, but that is insanity. It is folly. The second thing this person earns, the judgment of Christ as being a fool, the second is found in verse 27, because again the rains fall, and the floods come, and the winds blow, and they beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. It's really quite the audacious claim, isn't it? Follow me as Lord, build your life on obedience to my teaching, or you're eternally ruined. As we think of the context, verses 21 through 23, this is serious. And he wants to warn us. You build on the sand, you build on a foundation other than me, you're going to crash. Around the world, over the centuries, we find atheists, we find followers of other religions to say nothing of nominal Christians who have long thrown out any concept of the authority of Scripture, we find all kinds of people who love the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount in pieces. They love Jesus of 7-1. Don't judge so that you be not judged. They like that teacher. Or the Jesus of verse 12. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Treat them the way you want to be treated. And how many have written and philosophers have thought through that statement and perhaps even with a bit of guilt there, they realize it's brilliance. There's great light here. They've recognized it. They like the Jesus who says, love your enemies, even. Again, with some conviction, but recognizing the significance of what this world would be if we loved our enemies. They like this Jesus. The Jesus of Matthew 7:21 through 27 not so much. It's amazing the people that say, "Why do you just not follow the sermon on the mount?" 
when they've taken a penknife to it and cut out everything in the Sermon on the Mount itself that they just don't want to hear. We've got to hear it. Jesus, widely loved and at least respected by so many, also said this, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He said, build on a foundation other than me, and the storms of life will come, and ultimately the judgment will come, and your house will fall. This is the one who says there's only one way to joy, one way to God, one way to eternal reward in God's presence, and I alone am that way. This Jesus, many claim, is a lunatic, or at least a great deceiver, or most probably, to be nice to everybody, most probably a fabrication of his disciples. But this is the tradition that came out of the gate. This is what people said who walked with him, who knew him before they died, before that generation passed. This is the true Christ. People don't like this Jesus. They scoff at him for trying to scare people with threats of judgment. Well, when we talk about scaring people with threats of judgment, it's really just all a matter of perspective, isn't it? I mean, imagine that you're in a horrific flood and the flood waters are rising and you have a boat in behind your garage and you get into it just in time and the waters are rising rapidly and you look around and most people are long gone, but you're taking this boat and it's being carried along and you come right past a neighbor's house, a one-story home. And as your boat goes by, you look into that one-story home, into an open window, no shade, and there's your neighbor sleeping. And you grab the side of the house, and you're trying to not be carried away by the floodwaters, and you're banging on the window and saying, get up, get up. Your neighbor's got a few options here as he gets up. He's not real happy about being disturbed. But you say, there's a flood coming. Get in the boat. This is your chance to get to safety. He can do a certain number of things. He can say, would you please go away? I'm sleeping here and go back to sleep, perhaps. He can say, I don't believe you. I don't think this is real. He can say, I look, I, yeah, you're right. It's flooding. I'm about to die, but I'm not getting in that boat with you because I don't like you. I mean, he, he's got some options there, but the one thing he's not going to say is, you shouldn't be trying to scare me doesn't make any sense at all you're knocking frantically on the window you're striving to rise him from his slumber you want him to get in your boat because it's the only way to safety multiply this beyond measure and this is jesus he's saying you must hear me you must build your life on the foundation of my person and word, or you're building on sand and you'll be destroyed. He knows what's at stake. So to blame Jesus for trying to scare people only betrays the fact that we don't really grasp the reality of the danger. If the neighbor yells at me and says, would you leave me alone here? I'm trying to sleep. The reason is because he doesn't believe there's danger. And so it is with the critics of what Jesus says here. But turn from Jesus' words and you build your life on sand and you guarantee your final judgment before His throne. So we've got to stop here and we have to ask. We have to do a self-assessment. Have you moved past merely knowing about Jesus and hearing His words to building your life on this rock? We'll really miss what He's saying if we don't catch this. It is knowing who he is. It is knowing what he has said, but it's also actively building your life upon this life, this one in his teaching. Are you actively building your life on the foundational truth that Christ is the Lord of life, that his word, the counsel of absolute truth, and your only eternal hope? Can you say that? 
can you give evidence of that? This is what's vital. What does that look like? We could put this into works for a long time by way of application. Let me give just a few brief examples that perhaps connect with us. But someone really riles you. Truth be told, you really don't like them. You know they don't like you. And you kind of like it that they don't like you. And you're tempted to go to war. And you even think you could probably win this war. But you consider your life and say, I am the child of God. Christ is the Lord. His teaching is the truth. I must build my life on it. And you choose in relation to that person to act in love. Indeed, to love your enemy. And you go to work to create peace. That's how that looks in the life of someone that's standing on the foundation of God's truth, of the person of Christ. You go to work to create peace, not war. Or your marriage is in tough shape. And looking around, you see no other option than divorce. That's really the best way to go forward with this, it seems. be so much easier. Just call it quits, move on, maybe try again sometime, or just be done for good. And everything in you says this is the right answer. But one who's standing on the rock of Jesus Christ, who's really building their life upon that rock, says, my relationship in marriage is much Larger than just me and my mate. It's about Jesus. It's about His reputation. It's about what He's striving to do through our marriage. And so you actively respond in a way differently than what your feelings, emotions, and even your head tells you is the right thing to do. And in active response, you say divorce is off the table. And I'm called to love, if I have to say it, Love your enemy. You actively go at ways in which to bless, encourage, help, and strengthen this one with whom you face so much trouble. A life built on the rock. You see an alluring image on a billboard. Or it flashes across your computer screen. Or you find yourself romantically attracted to a married man or woman in your acquaintance. How do you deal with that? Play with it. Encourage it. Nurture it. Find some pleasure in it. And then in some guilty quick prayer move on and pretend it didn't happen. Or do you enter into that situation saying, I am Jesus' child. I am His disciple. And there's a battle of the mind that says, I'm going by God's grace to act as the follower of Jesus here, who says in this sermon, to look on a woman with lustful intent is to commit adultery. It is infidelity to others. It is infidelity to God. That's the truth. That's not how my world is coaching me to see this situation, but that's how Christ teaches me to see this situation. And by His grace, I fight that temptation. I work against it. I say no to the temptation. Or I confess my sin earnestly with intentions of change. I'm building my life on the rock. Another picture. You want the life available to someone who makes way more money than you do. And the thought continues to go through your soul. Why not me? I see what this person's driving. I see where these people live. I see what's going on over here. I, the basics of life you might be struggling with. Why not me? I will arise and I will get money. I'm going to find a way to do it. And by that thought, you begin to find a way to start doing things that are not right, but particularly not addressing things that are right. 
And it may start, first of all, by just saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give less to the cause of Christ. And I'm going to begin to invest in ways that I can make wealth. But one who's built on the rock says Jesus is the master. I don't have two masters. Money is no master. Jesus is. And all that he gives me is used for his cause, for his glory. I happily give what he desires that I would give, what would be right for me to give. And I live diligently and earnestly, and I make all the money that I can rightly, but I don't worship money. Building your life on the rock is like that one neighbor that had a not-so-hot job. He just barely squeaked by in life and a lot of the nice things he couldn't afford. He lived next to a wealthy neighbor and they developed a pretty good friendship. They liked one another, got along. This guy had everything, it seemed. But the poor neighbor said one day, and a believer in Christ this poor neighbor, said one day to his unbelieving, wealthy neighbor, I'm way richer than you are. And the neighbor looked at him and said, what do you mean? He said, I'm way wealthier than you are because I have everything I want. You never will. You never will. One who's built on the rock says, in Christ, I'm satisfied. Money is not itself evil. I, do, I, I go for it. I seek to marshal it and use it, but it's a tool in my hand to serve his purposes, not to indulge myself. And we must add, one whose life is built on the rock is persecuted for doing what is right. How do they respond when they're persecuted for doing what's right? I'm not doing this anymore. This doesn't work out very well. Why would Jesus do this to me? Why would He allow people to do wrong to me when I'm seeking to honor Him and obey Him? They don't think like that. They rejoice to identify with the crucified Christ and the persecuted prophets. It's a whole mindset and orientation that looks at everything so radically differently. The thing we want to do above all else is to gain and protect and preserve our lives. When following Jesus means my life is not protected and preserved, the first thing I want to do is break ties with Jesus. But when I'm on the rock, I say, praise God. I'm being misused, I'm being ridiculed, I'm being marginalized in the nation in which I live. I don't believe I can identify any longer with hardly anybody. But I praise God. I have a joyful spirit. I rejoice in Him. This is living on the rock, and we can go on and on. But to just it's, it's a life that's steering in another direction. There's radical difference there that's evident to those who know not Christ and are building on the sand. There's a solid foundation here that leads us through every storm of life to stand. Just these words. But imagine the whole sermon, and imagine that sermon filled out probably over hours, if not days. We note the crowd's reaction to it all, beginning at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The crowds are in awe. They're even dumbfounded. They've never heard teaching like this before. The Greek verb indicates that they were astonished as Jesus taught and they were astonished as they journeyed home. And undoubtedly, they were astonished for the rest of their lives. People don't teach like this. They talked about it. Can you hear two people talking and saying it? It, it seemed when we heard him teach, it, it, I, it just seemed like we were hearing the words, the words of God. Astonished. Why? Specifically, verse 29, for, this is why they're astonished, 
He was teaching them as one who had authority, positively, negatively, not as their scribes. Authority. Again, the utter audacity of it all. Obey my teaching and you are wise. Disregard my teaching and you are a fool whose life is right now falling apart and will be assigned before my tribunal to eternal judgment. Your house will crumble. It was dawning on some of them, as Stott puts it, that Jesus believed all the lines of the Old Testament witness converged on himself. He did not think of himself as another prophet or even as the greatest of the prophets, but rather as the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus' lordship is in stark evidence here. He is the one who determines who enters the messianic kingdom. Those people he knows as his own are permitted to enter in based on their relationship with him. Those he has not chosen as his own are banned. Verse 23. That's a positive. They saw that he spoke with authority, an authority that they'd never heard before, negatively, not as their scribes. The task of the Jewish scribe was to tell people what the law said. It was to tell people what others had said about what the law says. And to put that together. And to seek an understanding of what the law, what the tradition is all about. The scribe was a lifelong interpreter of the Old Testament Scriptures. And that in itself is not evil. That's a good thing. They, they knew they had this trust and this stewardship, so they were always talking about what it said. And what others said about what it said. But the task, here's a key, it was always to preserve. To quote others, to compare notes, to say this is the word that God revealed to us in the past. But unlike the prophets before him, Jesus never used the formulaic, thus says the Lord. What did he say? So often you read it, don't you? Truly, truly, I say to you. It's subtle, but in that is the prerogative of God. As when he said, your sins are forgiven, so in like manner he says, truly, truly, I say to you, here is the absolute truth from the mouth of God. Rather than teach the crowd what this rabbi said and what that rabbi said, Jesus cut his own path. This he says in this sermon, is what you have heard. But I say to you, not like the scribes. He speaks with an authority so cosmic that his followers will be not only conservators of tradition, his followers will be witnesses to his authority. How different is that? He's a rabbi. His disciples follow him. That's happening all over Israel. But as those disciples speak, having been trained by their rabbi, they teach others what the rabbi said. And how that rabbi's teaching pointed back to what previous rabbis said and how it all points back to the law. They go out as those parroting the teaching of the rabbi. But for Jesus' followers, it was something different. They witnessed to his final authority. And when they are persecuted for witnessing to the world Christ's lordship and sovereign authority, they are what? They're assured a place in the kingdom of God. Great will be your reward. What rabbi could say that? Every rabbi knew that somewhere along the line, something they said may be proven wrong. Not with Christ. He did talk like that. And people astonished leaving this hill said, who talks like that? Who do we know that talks like that? Who indeed? Who indeed? Your life is only as good as the foundation on which it is built. What is that foundation for you? Not what I think. Not what others think about you what you know to be the truth, and what Christ thinks. And be careful. Remember verse 21. You're following. Remember. 
we can be self-deceived. Are you day by day, moment by moment, seeking to live your life in response to Jesus as Messiah and Savior and in obedience to His Word? You recognize that's your calling in life. Or are you building your life on the sands of sensual pleasure, of material greed and pride? That's what really drives your engine, is your own selfish ambition. Let me repeat it again. Jesus is not merely calling you to do good. We've had to stress this throughout the sermon because there's more Bible to take in. He's certainly not calling you to strive to earn your salvation by your obedience. He's calling you to start at the start of the sermon. That you would be poor in spirit. That you would sense yourself to be in abject spiritual poverty before these teachings, before this Savior. Obedience does not earn your place in God's kingdom, but it evidences that you have a future there. It is your cooperation with who Christ is and what He has done in His design upon your life. He's not pointing us then to self-dependent goodness. He's pointing us forward. He's pointing us to the reading that Phil brought to us earlier this morning. The connectors are so significant. He's leading us to this place. Matthew 16, Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I mean, there's such concern here. Jesus is telling me I need to come to Him and let go the reins of my life. I need to turn it over 100% to Him so that what He thinks I should do in any situation, that's my marching orders. That's what I do. But let's not look to fail to look to the other side of it. What beauty there is in this. Give me your life. I'll fill it full. I'll make it rich. It'll stand strong. It'll stand the test of time. And it will stand ultimately the judgment. Apart from that foundation, you are left to a life built on shifting sands. You are. I am. We need to recognize this. And I think there's a warning here for each of us as well when it comes to the storms of life. You may look at your life and say, you know, it's, it's rained. I haven't really faced a violent storm yet at this point. This, this isn't fear tactic. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm telling you, you will. You will. The storm is going to hit. Nobody gets out of this world apart from it. The storm is going to hit somewhere along the years. Your life is going to seem to unravel. In that moment, you're going to find out what you're standing on. Is it solid rock? Is it Christ in all of His glory? Or is it your own selfish ambitions? In that day, your only hope will be found in a life that is founded on Jesus Christ. If your life is built on faulty foundations and that storm comes, you know one of the first things you're going to tend to do is blame the storm. Why is this happening to me? You're going to rage against the universe. Why do I have to face this trouble? But the problem's never the storm. The problem's the foundation. And here's the beauty of of grace in this moment right here, Christ has given you and me the opportunity to address it. To look at my life, to look at the foundation I'm standing on, and to think carefully about it. Because when that storm comes, there won't be any time. You'll be thrown into it in a moment of time, unprepared, and the foundation will be tested. 
even if you somehow slip through this life, and there just doesn't seem to be any storm in your experience, you're going to stand before the judgment of Christ. As you stand before Him, that'll be the worst storm that a life could ever face if you're not founded on the rock. Actively build your life on the person, the teaching, and the saving work of Jesus Christ. It means that we'll need to make a decision to discipline our lives, to continue to learn what Jesus demands of His people, what counsel He gives to us in His goodness and grace. We're going to need to be students of that Word. It doesn't have to look the same way for any everyone. Some are studious types, we say. There's others you don't care so much about books. And it's really hard to read. And you find that concentrating on thought like that, it's not how you're naturally wired. There's a range of how we learn God's truth, but we must all leave here today knowing I have got to give myself to the discipline of learning Christ's call upon my life. I've got to know what it is. And then secondly, we need to nurture the discipline of actively responding in everyday life to what Jesus wills. This is no news. To most of us. To some of us, perhaps the Spirit of God is using this to say, I've got to think differently about life. But for those even where this is just a reminder, how easy it is for me, are you with me in this? How easy it is for us to just slip through life and suddenly realize that everyday life is just kind of taking over. And I begin to match my life against the neighbors and the unbelievers that I know. And I just, I'm, I'm sort of taught and bent to live a certain way. There, there must be a response in our heart to consider, I must think of every moment of every day under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I have to actively respond to who He is and what He said. It's a life discipline in orientation. Can we provide evidences from our lives of submitting to the will of Jesus against our own will? Is it clear to those around us? Is it clear in your own heart? Is it clear to Christ? Then when he says, anyone who comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me and let go of his life. Is it clear to all that you've done that? Now, none of us has done that ideally and perfectly. And we sin against the principles that we follow. But by God's grace, it will be evident. I've let go of the controls of my life. And I'm seeking to obey Jesus in every area of that life. To do so is no assault on your autonomy. It is an investment in your freedom and in your joy. Your life is only as good as your foundation. When that foundation is Jesus Christ and His wisdom, you can build a life that is a tall and strong lighthouse that no storm will ever topple in this life or the next. By God's grace, we together will be becoming lighthouses that shine for Jesus until He calls us home. And when we stand before His throne, it will not be on the basis of what we have done, but on the foundation of Christ crucified and risen that is our hope. Are you standing on that rock? Let's pray. Lord, I have no ability to read the hearts of people, and I don't know everyone in this room how they would answer this question. But there is very conceivably those before us whose lives are being built on sand. Their own sensual pleasures, their own following of the spirit of the age, their own desire for their own glory and to have the freedom to do what they want to do according to the dictates of their own heart. Lord, will you please by your spirit permit this to be a moment of warning not only warning of what judgment is to come, but also a warning of what joys are being sacrificed. 
pray that they would recognize Jesus as the judge of the universe, but also as one whose arms are open and whose pierced wrists speak of His love for sinners. I pray that they'd run into the arms of Christ and say, take the reins of my life and allow me to enter your fold and to live as your sheep. For those who know Christ as Savior, deepen us in these realities. Teach us where we must obey Jesus. I know those areas in my life right now. I don't want to be with them. I don't like them. Jesus' words are telling me to do things that I don't find comfortable, I don't like. Help me to stand on the rock. Help me to be obedient to that calling. And I pray that every one of us would be offering these prayers as you bring conviction to our heart and teach us how to live for Christ. To love our enemies, to love Christ and not money, to not be anxious, to be peacemakers, poor in spirit, humbled before you, merciful to others, rejoicing in persecution, aligning our life with the teaching of Christ. Aid us to this end and purify Eden Baptist Church to this end, we pray. May we respond with obedience and thankful hearts. As we pause here to thank you for Christ paying the penalty of our sins by his death and rising from the dead to give us new life and this living spirit who produces his good fruit in our souls. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.